If you turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I'm going to read verses 23 through the end of the chapter. Hear the word of God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Amen. Father, I thank you for your word, this and many other scriptures we're going to look at, and I pray that you would enable me to uh, marshal them and articulate them in a way that really reflects uh, your uh, wisdom, your perspective, and uh, I pray that you would keep my lips from error and enable each one of us to grow in our understanding of your purposes. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we're going to be dealing with a very sensitive topic today, uh, the COVID-19 vaccine mandate. Uh, Some of our friends in the military could face very dire straits for refusing to get that uh, vaccine, including even spending uh, time in a military prison. And so I think they really do need our support uh, very, very much. Now, granted, conscience issues are very hard to navigate, and today I hope to give you a biblically-based tool to help you to navigate these and many other ethical issues uh, that, that are tough uh, uh, to, to understand. And even if the COVID uh, jab is not completely resolved in your mind today, I hope it will be resolved, but even if it is not completely resolved in your mind as a result of this sermon, I hope this sermon will at least result in more support for the consciences of our military friends, sensitivity to other people's conscience issues on this and other medical issues, and a better understanding of quad perspectivalism, which I think is one of the best tools that was ever given to me by Greg Bonson many, many years ago. Now, if you've been on Facebook very long, you know that Christians are all over the map on the ethics of the so-called vaccine as well as on the mandate itself. And the more you understand the very complicated uh, ethics involved and the way it intersects with science necessarily, and science is not infallible, uh, the more you will sympathize with why people differ. Now, of course, I think the main reason people differ is because there's not been very much teaching on biblical medical ethics and certainly not a lot on biblical civics. How much variety of opinion is there amongst Christians on these vaccines? Unfortunately, there is a lot of variety. 
Uh, you all know uh, Dr. Jonathan Sarfati. We've had him out to PHF. Uh, he's a dear friend of mine. Um, he's a brilliant man. He's a godly man. But he is about as far removed from my position on COVID-19 as you could possibly uh, get. I consider him to be a friend, but I very strongly disagree with his uh, position on this subject. At least on Facebook, he makes it look like you are in sin if you do not get the COVID vaccine uh, because you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. You know, you could be contributing to the herd immunity. And uh, so he takes a very, very strong, rigid stance. So he would be a representative of one of the positions. Uh, then a little bit removed from Sarfati are Matthew Mason and John Stevens. They are two representatives of many Christian leaders who say, really, there's no issue with getting the shot, and they encourage others, if their conscience is okay with it, uh, to get the shot in order to achieve uh, herd immunity, but they're a lot more polite than uh, Sarfati is. Uh, other Christian leaders are more cautious, and they say that the evidence is still not sufficiently strong, and uh, it's a personal conscience issue, it's debatable, it's not established, and uh, that we should appreciate differences of opinion. And they say we shouldn't base ethics on science anyway. Now, I would agree with them that we shouldn't base ethics on science. It definitely intersects with science, but uh, there's plenty that the Bible says about this. And then others like myself and Dr. Fugate and Dave Brennan argue that there are enormous ethical issues involved in receiving the COVID shot. And there is another layer of ethical issues in the mandate. Uh, whether it's a civil mandate or a business mandate, there are ethical issues with that. But I do bring up these differences of opinion to caution myself and to caution all of us that this is a complicated issue where good brothers do disagree. Now, that doesn't mean we should ignore the subject. Um, it means we keep going back to the touchstone of Scripture. So where do we start this morning? Anytime you see respected Christian leaders disagreeing, it's useful to see if these leaders are only looking at the subject through uh, one, two, maybe just three of the windows of ethics. There's four windows of ethics that the Scripture addresses. And um, uh, what I'm going to start by doing is saying, let's just assume that the Bible gives no direct commandments against this vaccine. I actually think that it does give direct commandments against this vaccine, but let's just assume that that is not the case. There still are other issues that are involved in ethics, and I'm using this chapter just to illustrate those other uh, parts of ethics. In verse 23, Paul calls us to teleology or outcomes. So it may be lawful, but is it helpful? And uh, is it expedient? If not, there may be ethical issues involved in it. In verses 25 through 27, he deals with the situation that they found themselves in. So, for example, there is a big difference between a person who unknowingly doesn't know that uh, food was offered to idols, he unknowingly eats of it, and a person who willfully eats of meat that was offered to idols, something that the Old Testament clearly forbade, and Acts 15 says it continues to be binding. Um, and Paul actually gives an example of a person who could be eating meat offered to idols, and he's not in, in sin. 
uh, in that particular case because he did so without realizing it. But you do need to ask, what, what happens when you find out <laughs> after you've eaten it? Because that's an interesting question as well. In verses 27 through 29, he deals with one aspect of personalism, the conscience. And so those are the four windows of ethics, rules, outcomes, situations, and the people involved. And the Bible addresses all four. Now let's start by looking at the rules, what theologians, theologians call deontology. And I'll spend most of my time on this point, and I'll occasionally weave some of the other three perspectives in, because even though you can distinguish these three, uh, four parts of ethics, you can't separate them. They, they are always involved in each other. So the first point asks, is it lawful? Everything we do needs to be done lawfully. Okay, when it came to the ceremonial laws, food laws, Paul says, all things are lawful for me. Why? Because in the New Testament, those are no longer imposed uh, upon the church. We should not universalize Paul's statement to say, oh, fornication is now lawful. Idolatry is now lawful. Uh, murder is now lawful. No, 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 no. The all things are lawful for me is talking about the immediate uh, context, and the context was dealing with ceremonial foods. He knew that it would be okay for him to eat Gentile food, but there were other issues involved in the eating of that food as well. Now, this morning, I'm not going to thoroughly exegete this passage. I'm using this passage uh, to show you the four parts of ethics uh, but it's more going to be a topical sermon. And I want to start with whether vaccines are biblically lawful. The lawfulness of an action deals with deontology. Are COVID-19 vaccines in violation of any direct commandments of Scripture? I believe that they are. Uh, and I'll start with the abortion question, since that is the one that is most frequently uh, raised. I've given you more verses in your outline, but let me just start by listing three of those laws. Exodus 21, 22 through 25 shows that abortion is murder and it should be punished. Proverbs 29, 24 says that an accomplice to a crime, to any crime, is also guilty of that crime and needs to be punished. So a receptionist at the Planned Parenthood abortionist is an accomplice. The nurses who help the doctor perform that murder, they are accomplices uh, to uh, that act. It's sort of like, you know, the getaway driver in a, a car at a bank robbery. He's treated as an accomplice. He was a part of the planning and everything uh, in that, that crime. One more scriptural rule that relates is Deuteronomy 23, verse 18. It pronounces guilt upon those who receive gifts from a harlot or a male prostitute or who in any other way profit from their crimes. That's even one more step removed. We're not to even profit from someone else's crime. And I'll bring some other scriptures to bear as well, but we're to just start with those first three. With just those three scriptures in mind, it's worth asking if the COVID-19 vaccines or any other vaccines, because we're not just talking about COVID-19, are any of them tied in with abortion in any way? Do the pharmaceuticals buy baby parts from abortionists for any other lines that they are selling? Then whatever you think about the vaccine itself, the other abortion-related products make them a criminal organization in God's eyes. 
Do they use any tissues or cells derived from an aborted baby when they produce and or when they test vaccine? Or do they in any other way profit from the abortion industry? When you get a vaccine, are you in some way implicated with abortion? These are the kinds of questions that those who are opposed to it uh, raise. Now, Jonathan Sarfati, who is a very articulate ambassador of how wonderful the mRNA uh, vaccines are, realizes these are valid questions that I'm raising here. They are not stupid questions, and so he spends several pages trying to show that there is no implication with abortion and for at least the current batch of COVID-19 shots. That's his position, not mine. And so let me start off by at least showing the surface connection to abortion that made Sarfati realize he has to defend himself. Pfizer initially claimed that no fetal cell lines were used until some whistleblowers within the company produced irrefutable evidence on October 6, 2021, that fetal cell lines were indeed used for testing. And by the way, this does not settle the question because Sarfati and others will still say, hey, it's not the baby there. And we're quite far removed from the baby. They've got some other arguments we'll deal with in a moment. But let me document that everyone now agrees that there is at least a remote connection of every single COVID vaccine, COVID-19 vaccine without exception, okay? And then we'll analyze the implications of that. As I just mentioned, even though Pfizer tried to hide its use of fetal tissues for a long time, it was discovered last year that they did indeed do Um, uh, protein uh, testing using the abortion-derived cell line uh, HEC-293. HEC-293 was originally taken from the kidney of a baby aborted in the Netherlands in 1973. By the way, HEC is an acronym. It means a human embryonic kidney. And 293 is just showing the number of experiments that they had to go through in order to be able to achieve uh, a working cell line. And, you know, in order for those cell lines to work and new ones that are being developed to be able to work, they can't use a dead baby. They have to get a live baby from the mother and then without any anesthesia, because anesthesia is going to mess up their product, without any anesthesia, they start cutting out the organs, the kidneys and the other parts. And so it's a a torturous process. The death of the child came as a direct result of the procedure, not the abortion. It was murder for the purpose of advancing medical research. And I've got detailed footnotes of pharmaceutical company statements and the laboratories to prove that they used HEC-293. Um, uh, There's no question on this anymore. Here, here are some other vaccines tested on the same cell line, HEC-293. Moderna, Sputnik, AstraZeneca, Vaxar, Covax, Medicago, Norovax, Pitcovax, the Walter Reed vaccine, the Sanofi vaccine, the Inovio vaccine, the Arcturus vaccine, the Imperial College vaccine, Providence vaccine, Coronavac, CanSino vaccine, the Immunity Bio vaccine, the Institute Pasteur vaccine, Rega vaccine, the Anui Zifi vaccine, and the Clover Biopharmaceuticals Clover vaccine. Johnson & Johnson uh, publicly admitted that their vaccine used a cell line called PER-C6. PER-C6 was derived from an 18-week-old baby's retinal cells. It was uh, frozen in liquid nitrogen. It was thawed in 1995 to derive a new fetal cell line. And there was another vaccine that used that same cell line. It's Altimmune. 
Okay, so with that clear-cut connection to abortion, how do Sarfati, Mason, and others justify the use of these vaccines? And I'm going to use Sarfati's arguments verbatim, word for word, uh, since uh, his are a bit more rigorous than the others. He says first, quote, so there are neither fetal cells nor fetal body parts, unquote. And when he says that there are no fetal cells, he means that there was no baby there that they took the cells from. Instead, uh, they took cells that were replicated from a previous cell, which was replicated from a previous cell. Uh, it's, it's, and he says, um, when the virus kills the cell, it's not uh, killing a baby. Uh, these are not little babies that are being replicated. Uh, this cell line has been replicating cells for decades and destroying one cell no more kills a baby than cutting off a baby's hair or removing a mole from its face kills a baby. Okay, so while technically he is accurate, that is true, it's missing the link to a crime. Okay, these cells would be impossible without the crime of an abortion and the torture involved in removing the kidney from that baby. Pharmaceuticals are benefiting from a horrific crime. So his second argument deals with that and says that we are now so far removed from the original crime that the connection is not, not real. He says, quote, any cultures from these original lines are likely to be now removed by tens of thousands of generations, unquote. So he tries to contrast those old cell lines with anything new that might arise. He says this, it would be a different matter when it comes to proposals to abort babies now, specifically to make vaccines. Then my colleagues and I agree that we should refuse such vaccines and insist on ethical manufacture, such as the new recombinant technology. Now, the argument seems to be that since we're profiting from cell lines so far removed from the original crime, in the case of Pfizer, it would be 1973, Moderna would be, and you know, there's uh, actually Johnson & Johnson would be 1980s, mid-80s. So we should not see this as an issue. But here's my question. How far removed does a crime have to be before a person becomes an accomplice? Okay. Do Pfizer, Moderna... Johnson & Johnson and other pharmaceuticals agree with the legitimacy of the original crime. Yes, they do. They absolutely do. Otherwise, they would use recombinant technology. And are they willing to use modern babies for other products that they are developing? Absolutely, yes, they are. They are accomplices in 2022. This is not far removed from the companies. Here's another question to ask. Was David being legalistic when he punished people for violating a Gibeonite treaty that had been made 400 years before? That's pretty far removed. But there are some crimes that are so heinous that God declares generational opposition precisely because each generation has refused to repent of the original crime. Murder is one of those sins that brings perpetual guilt and pollution to the land until the land is cleansed by the execution of the guilty parties. God does not wipe away the guilt with time and the passing of generations. Numbers 35:33 says that God's wrath rests upon the land until the blood that cries out from the land is confessed and atoned for. The guilt does not eventually wither away. 
And let me use Amalek as a, an illustration of this principle. Amalek murdered the stragglers amongst the Israelites when they were wandering in the wilderness. And they did so, and this murder was such a high-handed murder, and the leadership was in such agreement that God declared perpetual opposition to all Amalekites, and he made a law, he mandated that Israelites never be at peace with them, except for one condition, if they repent and became Christians, became Israelites. Uh, then, yeah, you re with repentance, there's immediate cleansing. There's uh, immediate forgiveness. But without repentance, they could not profit from an Amalekite, do business with an Amalekite, or honor an Amalekite. This was why Mordecai could not bow down before or in any way honor Haman in the book of Esther. He was a descendant of the Amalekites. It would have been unlawful for him to do so. Why? Because... The original murders were never repented of. That was many generations later. Well, in the same way, the blood guilt of the babies murdered in the 1970s and 1980s has not been confessed or atoned for, and those who continue to agree with those murders and to profit from those murders should not be rewarded. Like Mordecai, we should have nothing to do with Haman. Now, that's my perspective. Sarfati disagrees. But let me point out that Sarfati is not consistent on this argument that he put forth in the same paper. He said he would be very opposed to any vaccines developed from the recent Wallvax 2 cell line. He would treat those as sinful. Let me quote him at length. He says there is a relatively new Wallvax 2 cell line that dates to 2015 from Wuhan, China. This abortion was obtained very unethically, even by the standards of abortion, by means of the water bag method, illegal in the USA, that removes the entire amniotic sac. There'd be real problems with supporting vaccines connected to this one because it is not remote in time like the others. Fortunately, at present, there are no vaccines that have been developed from the Wallvax 2 cell line. Now is the time to insist that any new vaccines are not made with this line, but with the many ethical alternatives readily available. Now, I'm glad he takes that position, but I believe it is utterly inconsistent with his being okay with HEC 293 or uh, per uh, C6. I would ask, why would using Wallvax 2 cell lines be any more sinful? Why? Those cells are now many, many generations removed from the crime that happened seven years ago because these cells replicate every 36 hours. Is there a magical number of generations that suddenly makes it no longer a sin? Distance, whether in time or in geography, does not diminish the guilt of the original scientists or of the companies associated with them or buying from them. They are accomplices. I think the geographical distance illustrates this well. How far removed geographically do you need to be from an unethically uh, received organ? You know, in China, there is bountiful evidence that they have been executing by removing organs from live prisoners in their prison camps in China and distributing these organs all over the world uh, to these organ transplant centers. Is it okay to use those organs simply because the crime happened so far remotely geographically? No, I think this whole argument misses the point. We live in a culture of abortion. 
Big Pharma is in bed with Planned Parenthood and a government that insulates Big Pharma from any liability for its crimes. There has been no covenantal confession or atoning for those sins, which means that the companies are guilty. And so this argument does not hold water. Sarfati's third argument is, quote, that deed was unfortunately done and cannot be undone, unquote. Now, I fail to see how this argument is relevant at all. The same thing could be said about organs harvested from the live prisoners in China and sent to these transplant centers all over the world. It's huge business. Using exactly the same logic that Sarfati used on the vaccine, we could say, hey, the crime of harvesting organs from live prisoners, it's already done. It can't be reversed, so we might as well make some good come out of that evil. And I'll hasten to say that Sarfati actually argues against exactly that against using organ transplants, and he does so for two reasons, because of proximity and because of the reason of moral hazard, and we'll look at that in a little bit. But simply to say, hey, it's already done, is not a good enough argument, and he even realizes that he's not consistent there. It's not a good enough argument, so he piles on more arguments, but there's an illusion that's created by piling on arguments as if when you take all of these together, it's a strong argument. Now, we're systematically removing every one of his arguments. His next argument is, there is also no evidence of any moral hazard. In other words, that it would lead to more abortions. So this is, just to use an illustration, this is basically like saying, Unlike receiving organs from China, which does incentivize harvesting more organs from live prisoners, he claims the same is not true with vaccine research because it's based on such old cell lines. Now, let me define a moral hazard. Uh, a moral hazard refers to people behaving differently, usually worse a behavior when they are insulated from the consequences of their crime or when they are rewarded for their bad behavior. And John 10 verses 12 through 13 would be one example of many in the scripture of moral hazard. It's a hireling who sacrifices principle and people because he's doing his job only for the money, for the profit. Okay, that would be an example of moral hazard. And so Sarfati thinks there's really no risk of moral hazard with these vaccines. But I believe moral hazard is written all over the vaccine. Far from being an argument in favor of vaccines, I believe the moral hazard argument is yet another argument against them. Let me give you five reasons why I think so. First, by insulating big pharma from lawsuits, a huge obstacle to sinful and criminal activity is removed. And more than one pharmaceutical has been caught lying and falsifying their documents and been caught in other uh, very scandalous behavior, but nothing can be done about it. Why? Because the laws are written by the pharmaceuticals. Just do a little bit of research. All the corporations, you know, uh, do this with the government. It's written by pharmaceuticals for pharmaceuticals to completely insulate the pharmaceuticals from liability. These laws themselves are a moral hazard since they incentivize bad behavior. And so it's my opinion we need to boycott these vaccines in order to remove incentives for that bad behavior in exactly the same way that Sarfati boycotts organs obtained from China. I say let's be consistent. Second, the Nebraska Center for Ethical Research points out that perfectly good and ethical alternatives to fetal cell lines are available. 
They're good, they're well-developed, and by failing to boycott the vaccine, we are incentivizing the continued use of fetal cell lines, and we are de-incentivizing the use of recombinant and other technology. Every time a person takes a COVID shot, they are engaged in a moral hazard because they are providing financial incentive for the continued use of fetal cell lines. Third, if abortion had been a crime in the 1970s, the HEC 293 line would not have been developed and the perfectly good alternative methods outlined by, by ENSER would have been used. It's precisely the legality of abortion that incentivizes such research. And abortion is still legal, and so that's a moral hazard as well. Fourth, contrary to Sarfati's statement related to incentive for more abortions, that was the thing that was primarily in his mind, New cell lines are being developed from aborted fetuses right now precisely because these immortal cell lines are not really immortal. Okay, cell lines do eventually approach the end of their ability to self-replicate reliably, and they can get corrupted in ways that would hurt recipients, and you can read about this even on the FDA. FDA actually gives guidelines for testing these cells because there's more and more uh, problems that are showing up uh, in these cells. Uh, such as uh, they test for karyology and uh, tumorigenicity. That would be the capability of these cells to produce tumors. And uh, for oncogenicity, which refers to mutations in the cells that could give rise to a, a cancer and other problems. So they are being motivated to develop new lines, and those lines are being developed. I've already mentioned the new fetal cell line developed in 2015 called Walvax 2. That was developed by utilizing nine aborted babies. The Nebraska Coalition for Ethical Research points out that this new cell line replicates much faster than the previous ones, motivating pharmaceuticals to use them. It makes financial sense to use them. That motivation is indeed the ethical problem of moral hazard on abortion. Fifth, Dave Brennan and others have demonstrated that Planned Parenthood makes a massive profit from big pharma and from the laboratories that are involved in these things uh, by selling them baby parts. They are incentivized. The moral hazard of ignoring the abortion connection is not just found in vaccines, it's found in other areas as well. We need to do our research when we buy medicines and, and realize even if it helps us, we can't be using these things if they are involved directly in uh, the use of uh, fetal tissue. Even NPR uh, admits that labs are currently using fetal tissue to find cures and treatments for AIDS, Parkinson's disease, diabetes, cancer, autism, schizophrenia, blindness, various uh, birth defects. By the way, I would encourage you to study, uh, go to ENSER's site, the Nebraska Center for Ethical Research. They point out there's massive problems using fetal cells. And there's, uh, especially the stem cell research, and there is very little problems using your own um, stem cells, you know, from your body. Uh, they have been showing some fantastic results, but that's, that's a subject for another time. Anyway, the Cardiff Fetal Tissue Bank, the Swift Fetal Tissue Bank, similar repositories of this grisly business, ask women permission to use their aborted babies for new therapies. We can't ignore this. And let me go ahead and quote Dave Brennan on how this relates to the question at hand. Quote, 
No new abortion was performed or utilized to develop the COVID-19 vaccine, says John Stevens, but that's beside the point. The cell line developed from the kidney of a baby girl killed in the Netherlands in the 1970s is part and parcel of the very same culture of organ harvesting from innocent babies legally killed. That continues to this very day. So we are placing ourselves firmly within that ongoing tradition instead of standing against it. We are opting into it, investing in it, entrenching it, normalizing it. And I agree. I totally agree. So far, not one of Sarfati's arguments stands up. Sarfati's fifth argument's a bit longer. He says, quote, a similar comparison would be organ donation. Would we refuse a life-saving organ that was from a victim of a drunk driver, for example, who listed organ donor on the driver's license because he was killed in a sinful way? Accepting this organ is no way condoning drunk driving. Another example, it'd be totally immoral to murder someone to harvest his organs, even if it would save another person's life. However, if someone you loved was murdered during an armed robbery, would it be immoral to consent to organ donation so that even though a terrible sin had been committed, something good came from it? One silver lining on a very dark cloud? And would acceptance of such an organ mean condoning the murder? Similarly, should we refuse a life-saving treatment that is the one good thing that came from the abomination of murdering those two babies? Now let's look at each illustration that he uses because they are not the same ethically. Uh, I have issues with most organ donations anyway because um, most organs, not all of them, you can, um, you can get some uh, organ donations from a truly dead person, but most organs have to come from a living person. And just be aware, brain death is not a biblical criteria for death. I've got a lengthy article that deals with that. So they're actually taking organs from live people. And uh, there's a number of doctors in Nebraska and all around the states, actually, that are opposed to this. And I shouldn't go down rabbit trails because then I lose where I'm going. Um, okay. Uh, assuming for the sake of argument that organ donations are okay, then the first situation of the drunk driver who had donated his organ, perfectly okay. It's no problem. And I agree that accepting the organ does not condone drunk driving. But that is hardly analogous. Here's something more analogous. Accepting an organ from the Chinese regime that was taken from a live prisoner does indeed condone China's murderous treatment of prisoners and should not be done, even if it is needed to save your life. I would rather die than accept that, okay? And it doesn't matter how many intermediaries, we're talking about generations removed, it doesn't matter how many, there's a lot of intermediaries from China to the States, it doesn't matter how many intermediaries the Chinese-originated organ has gone through to make it remote, the issue is the same. Murder is different than drunkenness. Drunkenness is a sin, murder is a crime, and the social consequences of the two are quite different. Now, the second illustration he used was of a loved one being murdered, um, now, one could receive the organ if the loved one had willed it, you know, had an organ donation card. But she didn't kill herself for the purpose of giving that organ, and the murderer didn't murder her for the purpose of giving that organ. That's an important difference. And we'll forget about the fact that many life-saving organs can't be donated from a truly dead person, you know, the whole brain death criteria. But then Sarfati strangely compares that to the tortured murder of two babies in the 1970s and 1980s. Here's why I think it is strange. 
if that argument has any force whatsoever, then he should not object to obtaining cell lines from babies that have been aborted this year or last year. But he does. Why? Because he rightly recognizes Paul's repeated admonition in Romans that good ends do not justify the sinful means. It never does. In Romans 3.8, Paul adamantly disagrees with the statement, let us do evil that good may come. And of course, he'll shoot back immediately. Yeah, but it's, it's so far removed. There's no proximity. He's trying to tie these things together. We've already dealt with the proximity issue, but let me quote Helen Watt. She says, from the perspective of the cell line creator, it should be noted that the mere use of a go-between, a tissue bank or tissue procurement company, cannot sanitize the close complicity involved in obtaining and using fetal tissue. By analogy, if property is obtained through violent robbery, the fact that it is obtained via a receiver of stolen goods, not the robber himself, is not enough to legitimate it. The connection is scandalously close, even if the transaction is not, as it may be, prearranged. Sarfati's sixth argument is this. There is the principle of double effect. That is, if a contemplated action has both good and bad effects, then it is permissible only if it is not wrong in itself and if it does not require that one directly intend the bad result. Now, that principle of double effect was invented by Thomas Aquinas in the 1200s uh, AD. And it's not like it's a horrible uh, principle. I don't think it's adequate. Um, he used it to say that killing a person with a weapon is murder. But then he says, because of the principle of double effect, if your purpose for killing was to save your own life or to save somebody else's life, suddenly it does not become uh, murder. And I would say, okay, it, it, it's a legit conclusion, but it's not legit because of the principle of double, um, um, double effect. It's legitimate because the Bible explicitly says that you can defend yourself, right? That's the, the whole point. Um, unfortunately, this principle of double effect has been used to defend knowingly bombing civilian populations in order to hit a legitimate target. And they say, well, our purpose is not to kill civilians, it's to hit that target. Well, they know full well many, many civilians are going to be killed when they're hitting that target, and they weren't there to defend the target, they're just innocent civilians. So I would say it's murder. The same principle is used to justify euthanasia of a person in unbearable pain. Now, a good application of the principle of double effect is when a doctor tells a patient, hey, you're going to die if you don't get this operation. And there is a slight risk that you might be permanently comatose if you do get the operation. But the purpose of the operation is not to make you comatose. The purpose of the operation is to save your life, right? And so everybody would agree that even though there's a risk, the doctor is not held liable for a negative outcome if the point of the operation was positive. Okay, that's legit. But this ethical principle is way, way, way too loose for Christians to ever use it. I, I don't believe in this principle. But let's assume it's legitimacy just for the sake of the argument. Why does this principle of double effect not justify these vaccines? 
The reason is because Big Pharma does not meet the three rules of double effect that are found in every ethics textbook that talk about double effect. Let me go through them. First rule, the nature of the act must itself be good or at least morally neutral. But I've already demonstrated the act of using fetal cells is not good and it's certainly not morally neutral. And I'll later show massive harm that the vaccines are doing, at least that's what one science uh, thing says is, a, is definitely a possibility. The second rule is that the agent must intend only the good effect and not intend the bad effect, either as a means to the good or as an end in itself. That's all part of the definition. But I've already demonstrated that Big Pharma's totally in agreement with abortion and with using the products of abortion as the means to good, a clear violation of Romans 3.8. I've read the websites of each of the vaccine producers and they have no problems whatsoever with how the cell lines were produced. Many praise the way cell lines are produced. They are a part of the culture of death. So they violate the second rule. Third rule is that the good effect must outweigh the bad effect in circumstances sufficiently grave to justify causing the bad effect and the agent exercises due diligence to minimize the harm. Well, again, Big Pharma is not interested in getting rid of abortion. They could easily boycott the abortion industry completely, and Nebraska Center for Ethical Research has made that boycott super, super easy. But the fact of the matter is Big Pharma is in bed with the death culture of Planned Parenthood, and we cannot weigh the actuality of abortion against the possibility of saving life. And so on every level, there is no double effect excuse with Big Pharma even if you bought into the principle of double effect, which I don't. And by the way, the principle of double effect could be used to justify any vaccine whatsoever, including the wall, uh, any vaccine derived from this new Wallvax 2 cell line, something that Sarfati opposes. He's not being consistent here. You can't have your cake and eat it too. If double effect can be applied to HEC 293, it can be applied to vaccines that use fetal cells from Wallvax 2. Now, it may seem like overkill, but I know some of you guys read Dr. Sarfati, and I just wanted to make sure we're dealing with all of his arguments in, a, in an honest, intellectually uh, rigorous way. If his arguments fail, then we need to avoid the shot just for the commandments related to abortion that are in your outline. Now, Sarfati gives one more argument as to why there is no negative implication in abortion. He says, quote, there is remote immediate material cooperation, meaning that the moral object of the cooperator, in this case the one being vaccinated, and that of the wrongdoer, the abortionist who aimed for a dead baby, are distinct. Under this principle, vaccination can be allowed if necessary to prevent se severe illness and death, which it does, and we also clearly condemn both the two abortions from which cell lines were derived and any future abortions to create more cell lines. Now, there are a number of problems with this line of reasoning. Why is, quote, if necessary to prevent severe illness, unquote, even inserted? If it's ethical, it should be ethical even if there were alternative means of preventing illness and it wasn't necessary. Why does necessary make it suddenly ethical? Scripture is quite clear. You can never justify sin in order to save life. Okay, we simply cannot. Second, assuming for the sake of argument that the vaccine really is beneficial rather than harmful, you are still benefiting from a crime. 
God prohibited the priest from benefiting from the money being tithed by a homosexual or a heterosexual prostitute. Deuteronomy 23.18 says, You shall not bring the wages of a harlot or the price of a dog to the house of the Lord your God for any vowed offering, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. Now the priests might have argued, hey, we're not involved personally in that prostitution. Money's neutral. Why can't we use this money for good? You know, we're taking good out of, uh, uh, taking it out of evil circulation into good circulation. But God prohibited them from profiting from a criminal act, even though it would have done much, much good in the temple. And he didn't caveat that with, oh, it's okay if it's 40 years ago. Okay? And by the way, as bad as the temple priests were in Christ's day, they still recognized this principle, and that's why they did not take Judas's blood money. And for all of these reasons, I think that just this first point under deontology is all you need to completely rule out the use of any of the COVID-19 vaccines. Nor is, is, is simply a personal choice. I'm a believer in free market, but where murder is involved, businesses should not have the right to impose vaccines on employees. There are more and more medical practitioners who previously got vaccinated themselves. They've had all the boosters and everything, but as they've read the materials, they've, they've changed their minds and they've repented, they've regretted it. And so even if you question the next two issues under deontology, I hope this one is sufficient to make each of us eagerly support the cause of members in the military who are resisting this. They do indeed have a legitimate conscience basis for objecting to the vaccine. It's very important that Christians like Sarfati not undermine their case. But let me give you a second ethical issue under deontology. If it can be proved that the vaccine harms the body, then there are a number of scriptures I have placed in your outline that would say that this is a sin. Now, of course, Sarfati and others argue the opposite, that it does not harm the body, and science is really divided on this. Sarfati and others also point out, okay, let's assume it does harm the body. Even then, this is not an absolute principle because you're allowed to lay down your life for your friends. And, uh, you know, Paul risked his life. He got stoned how many times? Oh, he shouldn't be out there preaching in public. You know, it, no, it was okay to take the risk of harm to his body because he's doing a good thing. He's preaching the gospel. And it's true, as he points out, our bodies are able to handle some poisons. But I would point out, Paul didn't willingly cause harm to his body. And while science can't dictate ethics, if you're convinced that the ingredients will do harm to your body, that needs to be seriously considered before taking the shot. And the more I study the body of literature that's been emerging on vaccine injuries, oh wow, the more scared I would be to get vaccinated. So even if you were not convinced by the abortion connection, because this sermon was motivated to encourage us to support our friends in the military, I'm just going to give military statistics from the last seven years to demonstrate massive increases in various injuries that have taken place since the military mandated the shot. Thomas Renz, an attorney who works with America's frontline doctors, uh, did an analysis of medical conditions reported by military doctors and recorded in the Defense Medical Epidemiology Database. His statistical analysis of the government's own database shows that there was a 1,048% increase in reports of diseases to the nervous system in 2021 over the average of the previous five years. 
1,048% increase. There was a 487% spike in breast cancer, 350% spike in infertility, 369% spike in testicular cancer, 2,181% spike in hypertension. I mean, that cannot be explained away as a statistical glitch. That's 2,181% spike in officially reported cases of hypertension in the military. Previous years were relatively flat. 664% spike in malignant neoplasms. 680% spike in multiple sclerosis. 551% spike in Guillain-Barre syndrome. 468% spike in pulmonary embolism, 302% spike in tachycardia, 452% spike in migraines, 471% spike in female infertility, 437% spike in ovarian dysfunction, 269% spike in myocardial infarction, 291% spike in Bell's palsy. Now, on the basis of how contrary the government's own database was to the official figures given to the media by the DOD, Thomas Renz and America's frontline doctors sued the federal government. And by the way, the federal government totally acknowledges that the statistics that Lenz and others are producing that I just read to you are, you know, accurately reflect the database, but they have said, well, the database is wrong. Uh, there's a computer glitch that uh, made massive under-reporting of diseases prior to 2021, okay? So that's why it looks so much higher in 2021. But let me tell you this, which is more likely that the military has far more sick people than the civilian population on these kinds of diseases that are not gonna be ignored, they're gonna be people going to the hospital. Which is more likely that between 2016 and uh, 2020 that uh, we've got uh, the sickest military in the world and a far sicker military than the regular population or that this increase that they initially reported is accurate after the COVID vaccines began to be mandated. I, I know what I believe, but it doesn't matter which way you go on this the Department of Defense has been caught in flagrant lies. It doesn't matter which way they go. They are liars. They have lied through their teeth on this. It's not just mistakes, it is lies. Their statistics are blatant lies. Like other agencies, you cannot trust government statistics completely. Well, why? Just look at the, the figures that are in charge of all of these statistics. It'll be interesting to see where this lawsuit ends up. But while it's being contested, I would encourage you to read about testimonies of the actual people who have reported vaccine injuries. They are horrible. There are thousands of such testimonies. The massive numbers of testimonials seem to corroborate the original government database from 2016 to 2021 was correct. And it's only after the lawsuit that they claim it wasn't. But even aside from those incredibly scary statistics, there are plenty of other things that can be researched to see if it violates the biblical laws about not willfully damaging our bodies. What about the mRNA in the vaccines? mRNA is nucleoside-modified messenger RNA, and it acts like a set of instructions that tells the body to produce all of these spike proteins that normally it was only if you had a virus. You know, the virus would... Uh, do. 
and um, they do so in order to stimulate the immune system to prevent or fight the actual virus. Now, I've read the science behind it, and it's actually brilliant. It's just mind-blowing uh, how these guys came up with that. So it was good in theory, but there are a lot of questions that still uh, remain to be answered. For example, when does the body stop producing those spike proteins? And does mRNA disappear like they anticipated that it would? Numerous studies have shown the body producing them long after recovery. Why? And how bad are those spike proteins for our bodies? And does mRNA actually change our DNA? Now, of course, they hotly, hotly contest that. Uh, but, I mean, who, who wants their DNA changed, right? But a study published by the National Institutes of Health said that it did change the DNA. Now, they criticize it and say, well, it's not yet a peer-reviewed uh, article. But other studies have come to the same conclusion since then. For example, earlier this year, a Swedish study demonstrated that mRNA from Pfizer vaccine goes into liver cells, converts to DNA, completely changing and challenging the establishment's claim that it does not change or interact with the DNA in any way. Dr. Peter McCullough, an internist, cardiologist, epidemiologist, says that the new findings, quote, have enormous implications of permanent chromosomal change that could drive a whole new genre of chronic disease. Now, whichever side of this science question you land on, and science is not infallible, the situation, and science can only address the situation, right? The situational side of the equation would at least say, use the utmost caution before receiving the jab, or you might be in violation of several commands of God concerning stewarding our body. Now, if you're not convinced by that science, you think it's perfectly healthy, that's a different question. But if these statistics are even remotely true, that would be a second reason why businesses should not be allowed to mandate vaccines unless they're willing to face the medical liabilities for all of their employers, employees. And the employees need to have agreed with it contractually. You can't later on impose it on them when that's not been a part of their contract. If they mandated it, then they are complicit in the damage to your body. This is not a free market issue. This is a criminal issue. Sarfati's essay came out before any of these studies were done, so I'm not going to fault him for not knowing about them. But it does put in question his claim that if the potential harm caused by the vaccine is outweighed by the harm of the disease itself, then it's the best trade-off in this fallen world. That's his words. Now, here's the problem. We won't know for quite some time what the results of permanent change to DNA will produce. Science is a moving target uh, because it's impossible to get an absolutely certain conclusion from an induction, either way, from my side or the other side. But anyway, by now I think you're seeing all four perspectives need to be dealt with at the same time. The third topic that is often raised under deontology are the quarantine laws of Leviticus 13 through 17 and Numbers 2. Some people try to use those laws to justify the state getting involved in shutting down churches and businesses and airlines in order to protect people. And by analogy, they use those laws to give mask mandates and vaccine mandates uh, for the good of the people. And I'm not going to get into whether those laws are ceremonial laws that have passed away, as uh, Dr. Fugate believes, or moral laws that continue. That's immaterial. Assuming, at least to this argument here, assuming that they do continue, there are four reasons why that absolutely will not work to support civil mandates. 
First, both Leviticus chapters 13 through 17 and Numbers 2 show it was the infected person who was quarantined, not the healthy. To force healthy people to wear masks or to force healthy people to get vaccinations is completely contrary to the spirit of those laws. Those very laws argue against mask mandates and vaccine mandates. Second, the quarantine was based on symptoms, not assumptions, as Leviticus 13 through 17 clearly shows. Third, the infected people were only quarantined after alternative explanations had been definitively ruled out. Well, the military is not allowing Christians to use any alternative means of protecting their neighbor, such as weekly testing, wearing masks, which I don't think work anyway, or something else. And fourth, no leper was forced to seek a cure or even seek treatment. Thus, those passages prove the exact opposite of forced mandates for medical treatment, whether of the healthy or the diseased. Now, there are other questions possible under deontology, but I need to move on. As you can see, this is a huge, huge subject, and I will not be able to resolve every question, but I do think it's worthwhile asking these and other questions under each window of ethics, and if you do it in a thorough manner, I think you can get total clarity in your mind. Now, Obviously, I've already dealt with teleology person and situation to some extent uh, under deontology, but I'm going to spend a few more minutes on each of the other three windows just to fill things out a bit. Verse 23, 1 Corinthians 10, addresses teleology. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. And in context, we saw he was dealing with the ceremonial food laws. God had opened the door wide open for Paul to eat Gentile foods, but just because it was lawful to eat Gentile foods did not mean it would be beneficial to do so. So we need to ask, is it helpful for us? And secondly, does it build up others? How could eating Gentile non-kosher food be bad for us? On the previous two verses, he points out that if the food was eaten in a sacramental context of a pagan temple, well, all of a sudden you're having fellowship with demons. So that's not good at all, even if the food might have been good. But even if it was simply purchased from the marketplace, it doesn't mean that the food is healthy for you. You know, there could be lawful foods. If they're cooked well, fine. But they have parasites if they're not cooked well. Now, it's my personal belief that the food laws given in the Old Testament are the best foods for the body, and the other foods are allowable, but probably not as good in situations. And so our family follows the 80-20 rule. We tend to eat the good foods 80-plus percent of the time, and the maybe not quite so good, but they're okay foods, uh, 20 uh, percent or less. Uh, Here's the point. God calls us to care for the temple of our body by being good stewards of it. 1 Corinthians 6.15 says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ to make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Well, that has applications to other things besides sex. Honoring our bodies honors Jesus. Verses 19 through 20 continue the thought saying, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And so the point is our bodies don't belong to us. They belong to God. They're temples of the Holy Spirit. We should care for them as if they are God's property, which they are. Now applied to vaccines, you could land either way on this, depending on which science you're convinced of. Some emphasize that our normal diet introduces more of the same toxins that are in vaccines 
than the vaccines themselves do. And Sarfati actually has some pretty interesting statistics on that. So that may be true of some ingredients. It's certainly not true of mRNA. Uh, others emphasize the opposite, statistics on vaccine injuries, and they come to different conclusions. Uh, there are risks with many things that are lawful to do, but those risks need to be carefully weighed. Are the risks of vaccine injuries greater than the benefits? And you might be convinced differently than I am on this. Again, science is a moving target. Paul's second consideration under teleology here is, but not all things are edifying. So if eating would hurt a fellow believer, I might abstain even if I felt it was lawful to eat. Now, applied to medicine, some people have gotten shots out of love to their neighbor, hoping to stop the spread of COVID-19. That's admirable. It's just looking at it through one window, but it's, I, you know, you appreciate what they're doing. Uh, others have abstained because they want to have a consistent testimony against abortion. And it's sometimes hard to read what would edify or build up others when it comes to something we believe might be beneficial to us or might be harmful to us. And there are many other teleological questions Paul does not address in this chapter that could be posed when you're trying to tease apart these ethical issues. For example, moral hazard really is a teleological question that we've already addressed. Does a failure to boycott the vaccines encourage the continued use of fetal cells? Does it encourage abortion? Not all agree, but I think it does. Situational window related to foods is mentioned in verses 25 through 27. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience sake. Now, this is a situation of eating out of ignorance. Meat sold at the marketplace is obviously a different situation than meat served at a pagan temple. Likewise, meat eaten without knowledge that had been dedicated to a demon is different than knowingly and deliberately eating meat offered to idols, which again, Acts 15 says we can't do. So knowing the situation can make a huge difference in whether we're guilty or not. And so just as there are a number of biblical principles that apply to the situation related to foods, there are a number of principles applied to the situation of vaccines. What's our situation? Well, first, should we trust the mainstream media that has been known to be in collaboration with anti-American and anti-God ideals? No. It is naive to blindly accept the data that comes from the media, whether it's the fact-checking Facebook or Twitter or Time Magazine or the World Herald or CBS, MSNBC, you name it, and people say, but all they're doing is reporting the objective data that the CDC has, re has supplied. That's why I keep getting on my Facebook blocks, right, uh, for accurate information. Go to the CDC. <clears throat> well, it used to be that the CDC and FDA were trusted, but more and more people aren't sure what to trust. And I can certainly respect people who have gotten the vaccine out of a sincere trust in the CDC's information. But there's strong evidence that their absolute denials of any change or interaction with DNA were false. They have claimed that their own databases on disease in the military were false. Or is it their new claim that is false? Who knows? You know, what else are they wrong on? My studies have shown that they are wrong on a lot, and more and more doctors and high-level medical researchers are beginning to realize that the CDC, FDA, and other agencies have been caught red-handed in being political tools. Imagine that. 
Trust in these agencies is fast eroding, thankfully. Numerous doctors are now realizing the CDC is not an objective organ. It is one of many tools of the political left. And by the way, don't accuse me of being just an absolute cynic. I am not a cynic of anything that's in the Bible. <laughs> I'm just recognizing we live in a demonically saturated culture in America, and we've got to realize Satan is the author of lies. I talked to one doctor a month ago about medical research, and he loves medical research. He continues to follow it, but when the subject in the FDA came up, he treated them with utter disdain. Now, he said he'd, he's just ashamed of how in the past he used to treat just about everything the CDC and the FDA put out as gospel fact. And uh, he used to believe what the pharmaceutical representatives uh, who came to his office said about medicine. But he said since then, he has seen so much concrete evidence of corruption, politicization, graft, legal bribery from the big corporations, and outright lies that he has come to the conclusion the CDC is a criminal organization and the FDA is not far behind. Now, is that exaggeration? Possibly. I don't think so. <laughs> that Dr. Fugate doesn't think so. But I would say at least... Given recent events, it is utterly naive to blindly accept what any government agency claims. They are mostly led by people hostile to the Constitution, Christianity, and traditional values. Just look at the mass exodus out of the Pentagon and other leadership areas of good people. It's, just, it's not just an exodus. I think Biden's been forcing these people out. And who are they being replaced with? We need to understand our American situation to rightly interpret things. And so it's important that trusted sources for news and medical information be sought out. I love reading all sides of a question. The liberal stuff, I read everything because I can filter it through um, a, a biblical worldview. But the mainstream media, for sure, cannot be trusted to tell the whole truth. They've become propaganda tools for the establishment left. And while I will certainly agree the Bible is the only source that can be infallibly trusted, there are sources of information and news out there that are much, much, much more reliable than others. So check with Dr. Fugate and others about the best sources of information. He, I didn't ask him. He's going to say, what? <laughs> Uh, the last window of ethics that's worthwhile asking questions about is personalism. Who are the people feeding us the news? Are they believers? Are they unbelievers? Uh, have they been known to lie in the past? And actually, considering ourselves, we need to ask, where are my motives on this? Are my motives pure? Am I approaching this out of fear or out of faith? Is my personal conscience being violated by the mandate? Am I rationalizing in order to avoid shame? In the case of many military people, their personal consciences are not being honored at all. While thousands of administrative and uh, medical exemptions have been granted to military people, uh, so far zero, well, I found out from Megan there may be one medical exemption, but they were leaving the military anyway, so it's not, it didn't count. But zero um, religious exemptions to the COVID jab have been granted. Zero. That shows prejudice. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that our own consciences and the consciences of others need to be clear before God. Now, on the issue of food, Paul's conscience was more clear than some others, but he sought to be sensitive to others. Even if they were wrong, he sought to be sensitive to them. Verses 27 through 29. 
If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? So Paul was very sensitive to the consciences of others. And there are Christians today who literally stand in opposite sides of the fence on this issue of vaccine mandate. And they stand there from a conscience perspective. I mean, Sarfati's no dummy. I mean, his articles, a uh, rather well-reasoned article in some places, I do find fault with a lot of his logic. But I also respect... I respect his right to live by his conscience. And Paul says much the same in verses 31 through 33. He sought in everything to please God so that his conscience was right before God, but he also sought to the best of his ability to accommodate the consciences of others and to not bind their consciences. Now, it didn't mean that he didn't instruct their conscience like I'm doing today, but he let them be Bereans. But that whole subject of honoring the consciences of others is also another argument against any kind of mandate, whether by the military, the federal government, city councils, or businesses. And certainly within the church, this should be true. We don't advocate the Roman Catholic idea of implicit faith, where you've got to believe what the pastor said because the pastor said it. No, no, no. We advocate you being Bereans who study the Scripture to see if I'm wrong. And you guys know you're allowed to disagree with me. You're allowed to debate with me, right? We give you that freedom. But if you value that freedom, don't be telling military people that they have no right to object to getting vaccinated. That's offensive for you to value your freedom but not give freedoms to the others, okay? They have every right, and people object. But what if they get everyone sick with the flu on duty or sick with COVID-19 while they're on duty? Well, if a vaccine works and if everybody else is vaccinated, why are they worrying so much? Okay? By worrying, they're acting as if the vaccines don't work. Okay? When you realize the trillions of dollars that vaccines will generate for the establishment, this is no longer an objective debate. Verses 31 through 33 say, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Oh, so even though this sermon has not, it's probably left more unanswered than it is answered, I would urge all of you to give grace to each other on this subject. It's okay to have strongly held beliefs. I do. I mean, you already know based on this sermon, I am strongly opposed to getting uh, the COVID vaccine. They'd have to hold me down kicking and screaming before they could get it in my body. And I have not e even remotely given all of my reasons for why. But Sarfati's article has some convincing stuff for the opposite perspective. Because of the limits of science, we should not be dogmatic on the ethics of things that are dependent on facts taken from science either way. Now, you'll notice in this sermon that the facts I am using dogmatically are facts everyone agrees to, such as that all the vaccines use fetal cells, and therefore I can be more dogmatic in applying the Bible to those facts. Other facts I'm less dogmatic on, though I obviously have an opinion, and it's a pretty strong opinion. But I do want to end by being absolutely dogmatic on one 
more thing, as Sarfati himself is, thankfully, and that is that there is not a shred of biblical evidence to justify state mandates on the COVID-19 vaccine. Why can the state today mandate something that was not even available in Christ's day? Scripture is crystal clear that the civil government only has authority to mandate what Scripture gives them authority to mandate. And by the way, even if you were a pagan, you could say the same thing based on the powers given by the states to the federal government by our Constitution. And those powers are delegated, enumerated, specified, and they do not include mask mandates or vaccines or any of the host of other things that the federal government has uh, been intruding itself into. So we should be dogmatic on that. For us, the scripture is clear. If you look at my book, The Divine Right of Resistance, you'll see that there are only 10 enumerated, specified, delegated powers for the civil government from the Bible. They have no authority to go beyond those powers. The Bible does not authorize the CDC, the FDA, or most I would probably say almost all of the other agencies, nor does the American Constitution. Article 1, Section 1, look at that word vested. That means they cannot be delegated. Congress has to deal with all of them. All of those agencies are unconstitutional. Just, just study that for yourself. So if neither the Bible nor Constitution gives the civil government the authority to mandate vaccines on military people, we should stand behind these military men and women who are refusing the vaccine. Their resistance is lawful. It's a godly resistance to tyranny that deserves our prayers, support, letters, encouragement, calls to government officials, and any other help we can give them to end this tyranny. Paul stood up for the consciences of others, and so should we. May the Lord give you wisdom to make good decisions before God. Amen. Oh, Father, there is so much on this subject that could be talked about, but I pray that the ones that you've put on my heart to share would enable us to not only navigate the uh, rough waters of the vaccine mandate, but also any other uh, medical, ethical issues that we need to process through. Give us wisdom, O oh God. Give us wisdom and give us the prudence to walk in that wisdom once you give it to us. Father, may we value your approval, your well done, thou good and faithful servant, more than we value anything else in life. Bless this, your people. Encourage them. May we honor one another, even though I've strongly stated my position on this for a reason. I pray that we would honor one another who have different uh, positions on this if they are indeed seeking to study the scriptures and apply them to the best of their ability. Father, may you be with us through the remainder of this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.